I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Uh, tell us about growing up in Lincolnshire during the immediate post-war era. Well, uh, you know, uh, I was at a secondary modern school. Uh, <laughs> not a very good school. I wasn't that brainy, I don't think, and I certainly didn't like school very much. Uh, I had a very happy uh, childhood. My father introduced me to the game of golf when I was about eight. Um, we lived in a Collinson Avenue down at uh, about four miles from the, the local golf club at Ashby Decoy. And I remember my the neighbour, our immediate neighbour, uh, saying to my dad that he'd been out and play tried golf the day before and he thought my dad would like it. So they, they went off together and my father said he wouldn't be very long. I remember him saying that to my mother and four hours later he comes in, his dinner's in the oven and all the rest of it. So, And I used to uh, go off with him and pull his trolley when, uh, and have a go, inevitably, when the members weren't watching, when we were out of the sight of the members. But And soon, very, very quickly, um, uh, I was uh, besotted with it. You know, I, I wanted to be better. Um... My dad used to, we didn't have much money. He was an engine driver in the steelworks at wow. Appleby Frodingham. And uh, most things that uh, we needed, I mean, like golf clubs, we went to the sale room, local sale room, and there was always a bag of old clubs laying in the corner, hickories. You mean like an auction or something? Yeah, exactly. But, uh, and I started playing with, uh, with hickory clubs, uh, and no problem there as far as I was concerned. You know, you could cut them down, just saw them off, and put the grip back on and all the rest of it. And uh, I hit balls uh, all summer long and, uh, well, all winter long for that matter. I used to hit bits of rubber at the back of the gate. Uh, It was, uh, you know, I was, as I say, besotted by the game of golf and uh, it was somewhere to go uh, on my own. I'm not saying I didn't have any... uh, pals around uh, where I lived but uh, I wasn't really interested in messing around playing that much once I found golf it was somewhere to put my energy Was that your only sporting interest? or uh... I was a good soccer player I had a trial for Scunthorpe Boys at one stage when I got to about uh, 14 but I kept getting crocked and injured and and it was messing with my golf and uh, it, when I was 15 I made the decision to stick with golf at that stage I was about four handicap I suppose and playing for the county uh, you know the the senior county team 
I suppose um, one of the influences, and given what you did later in your life, as I, I understand you saw the 1957 Ryder Cup as a youngster. Yeah, that was at a very, you know, a pivotal time. Uh, it was my 13th year. I was 13 years old, and the Ryder Cup came to uh, Lindrick, and I saw all the great American players, and, of course, it was a watershed uh, moment for Ryder Cup because Darius's team won. There was an eight eight man team. Jackie Burke was the captain of the American team, and that same year Bobby Locke came to Scunthorpe Golf Club to give an exhibition with uh, with our pro Ted Muscroft, who was uh, a great guy. He, he was good to me, Ted. But I suppose as a golfer, he, he would be about an eight handicap. He was when I started playing there. He was sort of. Uh, Greenkeeper in the morning and changed hats at lunchtime and was a pro in the afternoon. It was a working men's club yeah. and and that was that. But and I used to help him on the course in the morning, cutting greens and doing whatever I could. And in the afternoon, I'd look after the shop. Uh, you know, we would putt around the putting green, which was right outside. And, you know, that was a second home. The golf club was a second home. And you're obviously a, a, a prodigy, is the word they would use nowadays. I mean, at 16 years of age, you were good enough to win the county championship in Lincolnshire. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, by the time I got to 13, I, uh, the practice started to show, you know, show up. And, and, and uh, I, I got down to 12 handicap that summer. And uh, that would be 50. I won my first Lincolnshire junior title I won four of those in a row so against up to 18 year olds but of course then you know it was a far off time there were only about eight or ten juniors entered yeah uh, golf wasn't what you call the most popular sport no it's not anymore. it was not either a the mass participation sport or b the television event that it is now and of course we'll talk later on in the program about how some of the things you did yeah. made it both of those things Tony, we heard how you were a teenage prodigy at the game of golf, and at 17 years of age you turned pro, that's 1962, where you uh, become the assistant at Potter's Bar Golf Club, the assistant professional, under an amazing man called Bill Shankland. He was a top rugby player, he was a golfer, and in your autobiography you described him as a bastard. <laughs> he was a tough case, I'll tell you that. Um, you know, I, I wanted to turn pro when I left school at 15, but I went into the steelworks for a year. My parents wanted me to have a trade behind me. And there was nowhere in Lincolnshire to, to be a pro, to turn pro, because the only way you'd turn pro was being an assistant to an established uh, professional. So I wrote off unbeknownst to my father and got this interview with Shanko, and I begged him to take me down, which he did in the, the November of 61. And, you know, Bill was a great salesman, you know. He said, I'll never forget, he said, oh, I've had 35 assistants through here, you know, this, that, and the other. We were impressed by this. Of course, what we didn't realise was 35 was so many. I mean, they couldn't yeah. stand it very long. And uh, anyway, I started there in 62, 1st of January. It was two feet of snow, I remember, and he wanted me to clear off, go back home. And I said, I can't, this is it. You know, I had my suitcase, a fiver in my pocket, and my dad had taken time off work to take me all the way down there and so uh, that's when it all started anyway. I've, got, I've, got to, I've got to ask, what were you doing in the steelworks? I was an apprentice fitter, filing bits of steel until getting them perfectly square and, and if it all went wrong after a couple of days work they used to smash it with a, there was not much satisfaction in it, I promise you that, <laughs> it was 7.30 till 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I didn't like it very much I nicked off for a few practice sessions at lunchtime an hour for lunch it took me 20 minutes to get to the golf course 
and I used to practice for 20 minutes and and go back anyway talk to me about golf in the early 60s internationally it was an age where the giants of the game were coming to the fore i mean uh, i'm thinking about arnold palmer and jack nicklaus and gary player previous guest on this on this program but what about in britain what was the golf scene like there was well, no European tour, for instance, was there? Well, no, there was no European tour. It was an English and Irish circuit. You know, I, I was in the shop most of the time, and I've quickly realised at, uh, at Potter's Bar that I didn't like that very much. I wanted to be a player, you know. And uh, But the stars of the day were Peter Alice, Dave Thomas, I suppose, Di Reese and Max Faulkner. Max had won the opening in 51. He was one of the main players. Neil Coles, Bernard Hunt, those guys were all the... The big names in British golf, but as you said, it wasn't the the, the spectacular and very public thing that we see today. Um, if I can give you an example of that, I mean, you, you make pretty good progress very quickly. You're Rookie of the Year in 1963, and you you play your first Open in 1963, and you must have been very excited because uh, there you are at Lytham, um, which has played a great part in your life. I finished thirtieth and beat Arnold Palmer, which I was very proud of at the time, because of course Arnold had won two Opens in a row and really put the British Open again back on the map. You know, it was his wins in those in '61 and '62 that really changed things. So no, I was off and running then, and uh, funnily enough, I was sent to somebody the other day. Beyond that, I can't remember ever having to qualify or you know do anything. I mean, if you turned up, you could play. <laughs> It's not a story of instant success, but you've been then to South Africa. You went to um, the United States in 1965. And I want to talk about 1965 because you go to the US for the first time. You do very well in the Open at Royal Birkdale, um, where you're 25th. And I think importantly, you're in a visit to Northern Ireland to play golf. You meet Vivian, your first wife. I uh, did. A big year for you. Yeah, it was. I mean, we used to, as I say, play uh, Britain and Ireland and... Uh, I went over to uh, play the Jays tournament, I think it was in Bangor, and we met at uh, watching one of the Irish show bands. She was going out with a lead singer in the show band. Can you remember which one it was, by any chance? Uh, it was the uh, the Witnesses show band. Okay. Yeah, and uh, immediately I saw Vivian, that was that. I, I went over to her and asked her if she'd... Uh, She'd come out with me the next day, and uh, that was where, where it, that all started. And uh, the big problem at that time, of course, was the winter, British winter. You had to get out and play. If you were a golf pro, you had to play in the winter. You couldn't just, you know, I didn't have a club job. I was one of the first, in fact, the first pro not to have a club job in the winter time in the off season. Anyway, I went to um, the members at Potter's Bar, the president, uh, Johnny Rubens was extremely kind to me and uh, we all pitched in 200 pounds as I recall that first trip to to South Africa was 600 quid eight tournaments and I won a grand total of 30 pounds well done didn't show much didn't show much of a success but the experience stood me in good stead and and you know I came back and had a a, a decent uh, summer we got married in 66, in May 66, and uh, went straight to the Dax tournament at Wentworth, and I finished third there. And uh, Well, we'll talk more about Vivian, because I know it's an important part of your life uh, a little later on. You really are starting to become a, you know, a full-time pro by the mid-60s. I noticed you played in the Canada Cup, now that it's called the World Cup, where you and Peter Alice, who you mentioned earlier, you played against the United States team, which was a bit of a problem because it was Nicklaus and Palmer. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about that. Well, no, it was... Uh, you know, that was in Yomiuri in uh, in Japan, and uh, the clubhouse was a big, big golf ball, 
hollow golf ball. It was an amazing spot, you know. Anyway, as you say, we got picked with Jack and Arnold, which was like playing with God and Jesus Christ yeah. as far as I was concerned. Peter was very kind to me. Peter Alice was very kind to me in those early days. I made it my business as much as I could to play with the best players because I knew that that's, you know, where I would learn uh, most. And uh, Peter was very kind, played practice rounds with me and uh, Dave Thomas similarly and, and Di Reese. And we used to play exhibitions at the weekends. We didn't play golf and finish our tournaments in England then on Sunday. We finished on Saturday. Right. The Lord's Day Observance Society was in place. And so we used to play exhibitions on Sundays uh, for Lord Roberts' workshops for 40 quid a head. I mean, Di and... Uh, Max Fortner would get fifty quid because they would do the auction of the gloves and the golf balls at the end of the uh, end of the day. So we were happy to sort of drive a couple of hundred miles and get forty quid in readies for the for that. It seems uh, a it, long it, way it, off. It now. is a long way off, and um, the world of recognisable golf that we might all recognise. We'll come up to it in just a second. I mean, one of the things that happens, of course, is that golf goes on television, and because yours has been in many ways a charmed life, uh, it's certainly on in and around golf courses. All right, thinking that you hit the first ever televised hole in one in this country. That's correct. That was at uh, Sandwich in 1967, and because they only televised the last three holes. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> so if there wasn't if there wasn't a par three in the last three holes, you'd nobody, never see one. Nobody could do it. So, <laughs> and there we were. Uh, I was leading the Dunlop Masters, and uh, the 16th at Sandwich, I knocked it in. I didn't actually see it going because the bunker in front of the green prevented you from seeing the base of the, the bottom of the flag but I knew from the reaction around the green of course it went it had gone in and that was a pretty special week nowadays of course you win a Maserati for that yeah well <laughs> I won a few cars in in the end I have to say I can't complain there I've, I've, I've won a few cars on par threes over the years um, you were starting to become a really good player by the late 60s, fifth in the Open in 1967, went to the Masters in 67. What I want to talk to you about as we lead up to your time as a, as a winning majors is your first Ryder Cup, because the Ryder Cup was, it is now, I guess, it's one of the great, not just golf events, it's one of the great sporting events in our calendar um, every two years. You played the first one in Houston, Texas, when it was still just Great Britain and Ireland. Um, I think you played pretty well, um, but... The USA absolutely marmalised the British and Irish team, 23 and a half to 8 and a half. Tell us about the Ryder Cup back in 1967. Well, 67 was really where my career took off. As you say, I got in the Masters that year and I played with Palmer the first two days, which was like playing around Augusta. Was I mean, I knew I would be just there to... People would think I was there just to make the number up. And I did play very well. I led that Masters after the... Uh, in the th during the third round after the eighth hole, but um, and then I had a good performance as you say, and I had a good summer, winning the Dunlop Masters, got us over to Houston and Champions Club, and uh, which was really where I wanted to be. It was around there that I got my tour card as well. But that first Ryder Cup, you know, they did the uh, opening ceremony the same morning as as we played, and so you were still a bit jittery having seen your flag raised and. Uh, you know, the national anthem being played and all the rest of it, and who had to hit the first tee shot? Yours truly. And it was a sort of squirmy hook, as I recall. Uh, but I played with Dave Thomas in the foursomes and four ball the first two days, and it was good for us. I mean, Dave was a horrible chipper, and, you know, I was a 
pretty good driver and uh, I think all the even holes were were uh, par threes and all the odd holes were par fives. So we figured out that Dave would never have to chip. And right. So we, we won more than we lost, you know, uh, as far as points went that year. We contributed pretty well, but I got beaten my singles by Palmer and uh, Gardner Dickinson, I recall. And, uh, yeah, we had a good... A good thrashing, and that got to be a bit habitual, uh, apart from the watershed year in 69. Tony, in 1968, I guess, you made a decision to go and play in the United States, which is, uh, everyone does it now, but I think you're a bit of a pathfinder, weren't you? Um, What was the reason for that? Money, I guess? No, not really. I I mean, I made a pact with myself, uh, you know, through the sort of mid-60s, that if I was going to do this, I wanted to be as good as I could possibly be. And I knew I couldn't be, you know, I had to be where the best players were, and that was America. So I got my tour card in late 67, in and around that where the first Ryder Cup was. Yeah. And... uh, I started uh, the year in 68 playing in Los Angeles and the West Coast and and on the Florida swing, uh, the Jacksonville Open was uh, in March and uh, I managed to, to win it. In fact, I, I had the best aggregate of all the four Florida tournaments that year. I won the Governor's Cup. I was second in Orlando. I was... Uh, uh, or third in Orlando and I was second in Pensacola and, and ultimately won at Jacksonville, which was a, the first win um, ever by a, a European on, on, on the PGA Tour because Henry Cotton, you know, never went and most of the guys that we talked about earlier yes. maybe just went across for a couple of events if they were invited. So I was, I was very proud of that and I was... I played with Arnold Palmer the last round and Don January, which, you know... It, on on their own turf, as it were, it was tough, you know. So that toughened me up mentally, and I really don't believe I would have had the mental fortitude to to pull the British Open off. Although I was improving all the time, I'd befriended Tom Weiskopf and Bert Yancey, two guys who are a bit older than I was, but they, same as me, wanted to be as good as they could be, and they had an end to a lot of the old players, Hogan. Uh, Tommy Bolt. These guys really knew Nelson, the Baron Nelson. They knew about the golf swing. And I knew at that time that until I learned to control the speed of my golf swing under pressure, that I would never be a great player. And that's that first uh, year and a half in America, I worked diligently with Weisskopf and I built my swing, rebuilt my swing from the ground up. In other words, I became very aware what my lower body, my legs, uh, what what part they played in the in the, in the game of golf? Under pressure, you always want to rush. That, yeah. uh, you know everybody wants to rush when they're nervous. And um, anyway, I got that sorted, and uh, that went in Jacksonville was was huge mentally. And uh, so when I came back in the summer of '69, uh, because I was devoting most of my time to playing the American circuit, but I was greeted by the British fans, you know, it was a very uplifting time for me, you know, although I had a responsibility to perform, but the feeling that people were behind me was huge. Uh, did, that, did that add to, did you have a feeling even then that you were a real contender for that, for that Open? Cause... Oh yeah, well primarily because I'd learnt this very important lesson you know the legs were leading in terms of my swing and and i had to keep the upper body back behind them and tempo was the the key to the whole thing keep that 
beautiful tempo going in it if you can. And uh, so I got all, all this support uh, at Lytham. You know, playing in the States, I was just another player. I mean, T and Offred, you know, we wouldn't get big galleries. Uh, you know, the galleries all went with Arnold and Jack and um, America being America. So coming back to that and... Uh, and anyway, I got off to a steady start, well, and uh, we all know what happened. Well, this was the first televised colour golf tournament in Britain, the 1969 Open up there on, on the coast of, of Lancashire, Royal Lytham. Um, you did. You got off to a good start, 68 in the first round, 70 in the second. In both cases, you're still slightly behind the great New Zealand player, Bob Charles. And in the third round, you really start to, to make your move, and you're leading by the end of the third day. Yeah, I'd worked myself into a, a good spot, obviously, finding it difficult at this stage to, to uh, relax off the golf course you know I was uh, uh, I was uh, I remember the last morning on the Saturday uh, which was the final day not knowing what the what to do with myself and I went around some museum or you know some did some you know keep the mind quiet yes. don't, don't go to the course too early because tea time is not till sort of two o'clock-ish in the afternoon. That's a really uh, very hard bit. You Gives know, the day to kill, doesn't it? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So, uh, but I managed to, to, to get it done somehow. Uh, got off to a steady start. I remember Willie Hilton knows my caddy is long gone now, but uh, I, I had to say to him, going down the second, I said, Willie, you're going to have to talk to me. Because he was as more nervous as I <laughs> or as, equally as nervous as I was. And it... it, it shut up you know he clamped up and I said you know we need to just have a have a conversation you know about stuff uh, you know you're the only guy out here I can talk to and let off you know a little bit of this sort of steam that had built up <laughs> but uh, it all went well and there was no uh, no surprises and uh, probably the best shot I've ever hit on the last uh, the, the, the drive on 18 really secured that are you, uh, are you one of those who cries on the way up the 18th when you know you've won uh, no, I mean, it was a very emotional walk after I saw the the, the drive going down there. You know, I'd, I'd got a two-shot uh, two cushion. and But I was, I was, I didn't, I didn't at that point, walking to, to the second shot, I hadn't quite believed it at that point. Uh, I waited, you know, I got the next one on the green and... Uh, and ultimately made four and, and one by two. And then it's never over until it's over, in other words. But it was a pretty emotional time. I mean, we are so used uh, and spoiled over the last 25 years of seeing British and Irish players winning these major tournaments and a whole variety of them as well. It's hard to remember that was the first time in 18 years that anyone from these islands had won one of the majors. Um, extraordinary achievement, um, one which, even if you'd done nothing uh, from then onwards, would have left your name in the history books. And let's let's hear you now making your victory speech after that 1969 victory at Royal Lytham St Anne's. I feel very proud today. Naturally, it's the greatest day of my uh, my life. I, it was always an ambition of mine to win the British Open Championship, but I never thought it would uh, come so soon. I'd like to thank my playing partner Bob Charles for. Uh, for the round, I, I, I enjoyed it. I tried just to uh, play my own game and forget that magic wand of his on the greens. It didn't really uh, work as well as it has done bef before, but uh, nevertheless, I thank him very much. As you know, I, started, I went to play in America last year, and, uh, and I feel that 
doing that has been the main reason for me being stood here today. And I only wish that we could get more of our young players to go over there and just try and qualify to get the players' cards on the US tour and just play in that type of competition. I'm sure that that's what's helped me win this championship today. I thank everybody concerned with the running of the Open Championship and more than anything I thank you people for supporting me this week. Thank you very much indeed. I'm very proud. Thank you. Lovely, Tony, and very formal, if you don't mind me saying so, compared to the air punching that goes on these days. That reference to play, players going off to America... Um, it was ahead of its time. Everyone does it now. I don't think it went down very well, did it? No, I think it went down like a bit of a lead balloon at the time. <laughs> but, you know, there was never a doubt in my mind that, you know, if you wanted to be the best player in the world, and that was my goal, you had to be where the best players were. You know, they weren't going to come to you. Three of the majors were in America, and I knew majors were where what you needed to make your mark, you know, if you were going to be a, a great player. Tell me one more thing. Uh, uh, when you finished and you'd made your speeches and the sh handshakes had all finished, you went back to your car and Aston Martin to find a note on the windscreen. Yeah, yeah, it was a sort of hate letter, uh, which you know put a bit of a damper on it, I suppose. Uh, well, I say put a, it couldn't really put a damper on winning the British Open, but it, you, you just feel sorry for people that uh, you know have to vent their. Frustration. Somebody was envious of your success. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was do, you pure... think, do you know who it was? No, no, no clue. Do you think it was another player? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't go there. Uh, I just, you know, feel sorry for people like that. I've, obviously, uh, you realise, you know, after you've had major success like that, that there are those out there that, you know, uh, jealousy and envy has never been part of my life. I, You know, if ever I wanted something, I went after it. Uh, and I certainly never envy or envied anybody or was jealous of whatever anybody else ever did. So, you know, it was totally foreign to my uh, way of thinking. And I just felt sad for whoever did it. But uh, it just put a bit of a damper on it, I suppose, that, that, that evening. On the other hand, you are driving home in an Aston Martin. Yeah, <laughs> I was in it. Uh, it was a pretty nice car. That it was exactly like uh, Sean Connery's in the in that Bond, early Bond yeah. films. You know, with the one with the machine guns on and the and the window at the back, the shield at the back. Yeah, you, I had a, a very nice model, a Corgi model. That one as a boy. You had the actual car. That's the difference, yeah. Tony. Yeah, it was special. It was a real nice one. That Tony, I'm going to ask you a question that you probably have a million answers to. How did winning that first Open, that major, change your life? Well, it, it changed it uh, <laughs> a lot <laughs> for good, you know. But the first thing that hit me, uh, you know, I, I needed, I felt I needed to go somewhere and uh, and just, you know, get this through my head, you know, that life was never going to be the same. I mean, apart from being to totally wiped out mentally, I had this meeting with Mark McCormack the next day. And I, I said, you know, I need to go somewhere and contemplate life and, and get my breath back. And he said, you can't do that. You've got to go back to America. They're playing for the biggest first prize in golf next week at Westchester, $50,000 first prize. And uh, I should have seen the writing on the wall, but I, I didn't. I thought, well, this guy must know what he's doing. He's been handling Arnold and Nicholas and the other guys for a while. And I went back to America and missed four cuts in a row what should have been the best month of my life was probably the worst and it took me 
till the September and the Ryder Cup later that year to really get my my breath back. But uh, as I say, I was I was no longer able to do things on my own terms. It was a difficult time on that basis. There is some upside though because it's here in the turn of the seventies. Um, golf is in America, particularly, very much um, part of the showbiz set, the Hollywood set. And I know you played in the Bing Crosby Invitationals. Um, and as a result, I think you got to know all these guys. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was a fabulous time for me. I mean, I was walking on air. I mean, uh, through Jim Mahoney, who was Sinatra's press agent, I met Frank and uh, and played with Dean Martin. And uh, Andy Williams and I played in the LA Open Pro-Am every year together. And Andy became a good friend. And... Uh, I just met so many of those guys, you know. We used to go to Bel Air Country Club where they're all members and and uh, hang out with them. And, uh, I mean, it was a, tr- uh, a very heady time, I must say. <laughs> I, just thought I'd, I just thought I'd mention that because there aren't many people who come on here and have met Frank Sinatra and played golf oh, with yeah. Dean Martin. You mentioned that in 69, having won the Open, we then come to the, to the Ryder Cup again, and it's at Royal Birkdale. You played brilliantly, I think it's fair to say, and it was a 16-16 draw, which means, I mean, that was the first time for a long time that Britain and Ireland hadn't been absolutely thrashed, I think. Is that right? Yeah, it was a real watershed year. We had Eric Brown as our captain. Eric was a tough Scot, you know, the the fiery Scot, the press used to call him. And he sort of announced early in the week, if their ball goes in the rough, don't help them look for it. Well, it wasn't a very sporty way to go about things, I didn't think. Anyway, not many people, not many of us sort of listened to that. And uh, But it was a controversial Ryder Cup as well, because Dave Hill and Ken Still had a row with uh, Bernie Gallagher and uh, Brian Huggett at one time. And... And lots of stuff went on, but the bottom line was I, I was unbeaten. I played Jack the last day twice. Uh, it was a different format than yes. it is today, and I, I managed to beat him in the morning. And in the afternoon, we were all square coming down the last, and uh, that was the year of what they refer to as the concession. Well, we're talking about... Uh, uh, it, it's easy to talk about one of the most famous golf shots in, in history. This is the most famous... It's certainly the most famous non-shot in history, isn't it? <laughs> That's right. Nicholas putts out, and yeah. uh, you're, you're still a reasonable distance from the hole. I had two feet. He guaranteed the draw for Britain Ireland. Yeah, I, I marked my ball, and he had a 20-footer to win outright. And he ran this 20-foot putt, five, four and a half to five feet past. And... Uh, like the great player he is, he, he went round and hold hold his putt. And I was stood during this period thinking, whatever happens, I'm going to have to make this putt. You know, whatever happens. And lo and behold, as he bent down to pick his ball out of the hole, he picked my coin up. And he, he said, I don't think you'd have missed that, but I would never give you the opportunity in these circumstances. So uh, it was uh, a tremendous gesture of sportsmanship. We were good pals, and he knew I'd won the Open a couple of months before. He didn't want anything to happen to spoil that, for both for Britain. He always saw the big picture, Jack, Uh, both personally and for Britain. You know, Britain had a new sort of Open champion. He didn't want to do anything. He didn't. Uh, you know, some in, in his team didn't uh, like, like it no, They wanted much. to win the actual match as well as retain the trophy, sure. Ex- exactly. But, 
You know, the interesting thing, though, is that of all the amazing and wonderful and brilliant golf we've seen in the Ryder Cup over the over the, the subsequent forty-five years, whatever it is, um, it's that sh- that concession and you walking over and shaking his hand is shown every bit as often as any of the great shots. And yeah. and, and I know people are still having holding ceremonies to celebrate it. You know, in, in the middle of the, the, this century. That's right. Well, it, it's uh, it was a fantastic, and it was the it it I think it epitomised the the spirit of of what the, we like jack and i like to see you know in the Ryder cup matches and thank god over the last 30 years or so since 40 years it's been that way you know i mean guy you can look a guy in the eye having had a hard game win lose or draw and say well played uh you know that's really what this business is all about Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. A few months after that, in 1970, the U.S. Open is at Hazeltine um, in Minnesota, and you win your second major. And if the first one was a jittery affair where you're coming from behind against Bob Charles and all the rest of it, if there could ever be anything could ever be described as an easy win in a major golf tournament, would you describe this one as easy? Well, it might look easy on paper, seven shot yeah, victory. I, I didn't have to play the shots, <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh... No, it was. I got a putting tip the day before from uh, Bert Yancey's brother, club pro, and you know it it stayed with me. The first day had forty mile an hour gales, and of course I'd been weaned on wind and, and over here, you know, playing links golf. Well, yeah, and I Skegness and all, all that, those yeah. places. Yeah, the wind. <laughs> there's nothing to stop it. You know, sweeping across those Lincolnshire plains. So. Uh, you know, I, I got off to a good start. I was the only one to beat par the first day, and I was really quite comfortable with it and uh, built built my score. I led by two the first day, three the second, and I, ultimately by four the third. And I've said this a few times before. Before I went out to that last round with a four-shot lead, I would probably change places with any form of humanity. I mean, I was very, very 
nervous and uptight. And yeah. I mean, knowing that if I didn't get it done, I would probably be branded as some sort of choker or, or whatever. So I was in a bit of a, a state. And going into that final round, uh, there was a, a, a point halfway where I'd missed a couple of short putts and, and it could have gone either way. And I hold one on the nine from here to eternity that decided to go in and I felt all the pressure sort of ease. And and in the end, it was the best, uh, you know, best golf I ever played in a single week in my life, you know, to win the US Open by seven. It doesn't get any better than that. Well, let me, let me just say, you, you won by seven. That was, uh, you know, um, you're the only player under par. That remained the record for the US Open until 2000 when Tiger Woods won by 15 shots, which always makes me think that the rest of the players should have given him their prize money as well because that's not really a contest, is it? <laughs> um, how, do you, how does it compare in your mind, looking back now, to winning the British Open at Lytham? Um you know, it's it's major championships are where you want to be. If I'd had the choice to win, which one would I want to win first? It would have been the British. It's the oldest. It's my country's major. Uh, and so I feel blessed, you know. the I think the US Open is the hardest one because the USJ set the course up on the edge, uh, you know, and play very difficult courses around the, the country. So uh, I just feel blessed that I've... You know, got them both. Nobody can take them away. As a result, uh, the 25-year-old Tony Jackson is simultaneously the holder of the British and US Open. Let's hear a few words uh, from a great golfer himself, of course, our preeminent golf uh, commentator and your friend, Peter Alice, about your achievements around that time. Well, we hadn't had any success in our Open Championship since Max Faulkner had won in 1951. And uh, when he won our Open and then he won the American Open the following year, I mean, it was a wonderful boost for British golf and it was, uh, it was great for Tony. He had a flamboyance about him. He was, uh, he was brisk and quick and confident. He was exciting. He was like a rapier. He wasn't a broadsword. He was dashing and exciting. And, and he turned out, well, he dressed well. He was neat and tidy and handsome. And uh, it was a pleasure to see him play. Peter Ellis there discussing uh, you as a 25-year-old. Um, is it, let me ask you a question. Did you feel you had the world at your feet then? Is that an exaggeration? Um, well, I felt um, the world. I never, I never sort of looked at it like that. You know, I, I was, I was on the way to achieving my goals. You know, I think I was probably the best player in the world then. You know, I mean, uh, through that year. Um, I'd, I'd uh, winning those two and having those two on my mantelpiece at the same time. So, I, you know, in some respects, I suppose I'd, I'd achieved my goal. I was 25 years old. Not that I backed off or didn't try to back off. No. But I was, I was being, as I said earlier, it wasn't my life wasn't mine anymore. I was really being told where to go and play and what to do and. And that really stuck in my craw. Ultimately, that was the the doing of me. In the end, you know, I got. I, I never lived in America. I should have lived in America, which is. Uh, I had a wonderful club affiliation at Sea Island in Georgia, and McCormack priced them out of my. Uh, you know, they couldn't afford me anymore, and I never had another club affiliation in America. Clearly, he wanted me in Europe. And it wasn't about me, it was about him. You know, he was getting IMG yep. going global, and I was a catalyst to getting uh, sport, other sporting clients for him over here. Well, later on in the programme, we'll hear um, how, from that moment, you didn't go on to win another major, and we'll talk about all of that. But it is nice, Tony, to be able to say, I guess at that time, I was the best player 
in the world. How did you feel going into the Open Championship here just a fortnight later at St Andrews? Well, you know, I was on top of the world, obviously, and uh, it was a pretty heady time. I remember Ted Heath came then uh, with Willie yeah. Whitelaw and saw me off on the first tee. I uh, shook hands with them. And lo and behold, I mean, I shot 29, the first nine, on the old course. It was a very benign day, and the, the scores were, were low, and I ended up holding my second shot on the ninth, and then I birded the tenth hole to go eight under through ten holes. Wow. So um, it was... Uh, going to be a, a big day I thought and then, and then uh, the world came to an end by the time I got to sort of hit my second shot on 14 a thunderstorm, the heavens opened and uh, play was abandoned for the day the course was flooded we all went off and came back the next morning at 7.30 and of course uh, the course was all different, I was uh, it wasn't the same guy as, as I had been the day before and I I dropped a few shots uh, coming in and ended up shooting 67, I think, and uh, I finished fifth that week. Uh, you were in contention all the way through and fell away just towards the very end, before that famous playoff between Jack Nicholas and Doug Sanders. Would you count that as a lost opportunity, Tony? Are there such things in golf, or are there just people playing better than you at the time? No, yeah, I definitely think it was... You've got to take it on the chin. I mean, obviously, to, if I'd have finished, been able to finish that first round on the day, I think I'd have been shot 63 or 4 or whatever, it would have been a much better start but conditions that week got progressively worse wind started to blow extra hard and I hung in there I had a putt on the last green to finish third uh, which I'd missed and ended up tying for fifth but uh, you know you've got to just uh, move on uh, from from that sort of thing well i mean you, you also finished 12th in the us masters so you're you're in contention at every single one of these tournaments um, but also at the start of the 70s, of course, here in Britain um, and Ireland, we had the issue of the, the troubles in Northern Ireland were really beginning to take hold of that part of the world. Your wife, then Vivian, um, is a Northern Irish person, and you, you got involved as well. You started to receive some pretty nasty and very viable death threats. Yeah, yeah, I got a couple of telegrams uh, saying that if I played here or there, you know, I would, I would get topped. And, uh, you what, was know, that, what was that about? What was the issue for them? Well, I don't know. I think people are just looking to, to guys like me to get as much publicity as they could. Uh, uh, anyway, the upshot of it all was that uh, Vivian's family was still living in uh, Agra Street at the time, near the Lagan there, and uh, they emigrated off to Australia like a lot more did, and uh, they moved lock, stock and barrel, and I think that that was the right thing for them to do, and uh, obviously I didn't go back there we, it's a shame because we had so many wonderful times uh, pre the troubles uh, in the early 60s mid 60s it was a, a, a great place to be we talked about 69-70 and how you know and you weren't I don't think you were being immodest I think you can point to the fact you were pro probably the best player a uh, golf player on the planet and therefore you might expect to win more major tournaments and there's lots more tournaments to come that we can talk about um, it didn't happen Perhaps the nearest it came, and perhaps you would say, I wonder if you'd say the decisive moment in, in your parabola as a, as a professional golfer comes at Muirfield in 1972, the British Open at Muirfield, or the Open as I must learn to call it, um, when you and Lee Trevino are level coming down the second last hole. Tell me what happened, Tony. Yeah, we were level, and uh, I played with him uh, the last two rounds, uh, and he'd... Uh, 
you know, performed very well. He was a great player, Trevino, there's no doubt about that. Charismatic and, too. Yeah, he, he was, and uh, the crowds loved him, and of course he never stopped talking, they liked that too. Yeah, uh, probably a little bit difficult for you if you're on the receiving yeah, end of it. No, you had to endure it as a as a playing alongside what him. Would it be for time to shut up and leave you alone? Well, I, t- I tried that, actually, later in the year at the World Match Play, when I was four down, and I said, Lee, I don't want to talk, uh, let's just play golf. He said, you don't have to talk, just listen. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was the response I got, and and, and he just uh, he less, did less, what he less, did. Less patient men than you might have had something to say back to that. But that's another story. Well, you know. Uh, so, so you're coming down that fame, you know, the seventy first hole. Um, yeah. Well, I he chipped in um, four times in in that last two rounds. Uh, a couple of flukes. He sculled one out of the bunker in the third round, and and it bounced once on the green and then flew straight in the hole. And I'd I'd sort of put up with all that, you know, and still maintain my determination yeah. to, to beat him. And he hooked his sea shot on the 71st hole into the bunker, which meant he could only play out sideways. And I did a good drive and a good second just short of the green in two. And he was uh, sh- shorter the, in three than I was in two. He did that. Proceeded, uh, proceeded to hit his fourth shot over the back, on, on an upslope at the back, and uh, before I played my third shot, and I hit my pitch. Uh, it wasn't a great shot. I thought it would run more than it did, but I left it about 15, 16 feet short. Right. And then, uh, sort of half caringly, he approached his and. Bing, bang, bong, you know, chipped it in again for a par five. My immediate reaction was, now I've got this to stay in front, my putt. And, you know, you son of a gun, you're not going to beat me like that. That was my attitude. And I took a, a rush at the putt. I, I firmly believe sitting here today, if I'd have been more patient and not, not had that sort of attitude, uh, I could have two-putted all day long, but I had a go at it, and it went that sort of awkward distance by two and a half, three feet, and I missed the return. And, of course, the bottom fell out of my week there. I didn't even par the last. I drove in the bunker, and Nicholas snuck in into second place, and I ended up finishing third. And and it was very difficult to get my head around this, um, you know, the, the whole... I didn't think... You won tournaments with luck by, you know, he he just chipped in so many times and I'd overcome it. And then on this critical time when he was sort of half, seemed to be half trying, it went in and something snapped inside me then in, in, with regards to majors. I know it, it shouldn't have, but uh, Nicholas and Palmer came up to me that evening and said... Uh, uh, we were staying at Grey Walls. He said, you know, don't, they both said, don't let it change your outlook, your attitude, you know. And uh, But something went awry there. It was very hard to swallow that. You, you were quoted in t- last year as saying, I was never the same again after that. I didn't get my head around it. It definitely knocked the stuffing out of me somehow. Can I ask you a straightforward? I mean, obviously, you said Lee, Lee was a great player, Lee Trevino. You also clearly believe he was lucky to win that and you unlucky, therefore, to lose it. What do you think every year? Because every year, often when you're working on the television, they always show that chip. Yeah, well, yeah, and so they should, you know. It was a pivotal thing. I mean, certainly in my career. And I think in my career, in fairness, it was a, you know, I'd I'd been doing this 
back and forth, back and forth all the year. I was going back and forth to America five, six, seven times a year to, to try and fulfill commitments. And I was getting a bit jaded of this, you know. This has been going on for four or five years now, and I think the combination of of all the things uh, pr- prompted me to to move, you know, to play and focus on what became uh, the European tour. It really got it started around uh, that period, 72, 73, and... Uh, they used me as a sort of uh, catalyst to get it moving along. You went on to win over the next 10 years, um, several more tournaments, um, but you were never quite uh, in, in, in top contention the way you were. How do you look back on the latter part of your golf career? Well, I, I was treading water, as you say. I won a tournament virtually every year through, Absolutely. through, through the 70s. and uh, Right early, up to the early 80s, yeah. Yeah, early 80s. Uh, but uh, the essential part of it was I wasn't enjoying what I was doing. I mean, the, the, you know, I, I, I got... Uh, I put too much pressure on my putting, uh, trying to perform, not necessarily for myself. Now I'm back playing full-time in Britain, Europe. Uh, expectations of me, I felt, were very high, and I was putting myself under too much pressure. You're also being used as a kind of poster boy for the establishment of the European tour as well, Absolutely, which possibly yeah. its own problems. No, no, yeah, I mean, I would go off to places like Germany and Sweden, and they would put me out last first two days. You know, I mean, you, you, if you're out early one day, you're usually late the next. But, I mean, in my case, back then, it was I was last both, both two days and, uh, and playing on greens that, and under conditions that weren't conducive. You know, there was no security as, it, as, as we'd had in America. Uh, a lot of the countries new to the game weren't cognizant of the fact that you had to keep people quiet during during when when people players were playing there was cameras going and click 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 all the time and I was the one that were clicking on and it was just aggravating and it difficult uh, but despite that you know as I say I won at an event every hour near Tallinn open in 73 mm-hmm. the Scandinavian in 74 whatever the Kerry it was. Gold in 76 K- yeah. the Braun in 79 well, yeah. the, the, the Jersey Open in 81 the Sun Alliance PGA in uh, 82 yeah. well, can you remember the moment you decided um, having been a teenage prodigy a brilliant young player can you remember the moment you said I mean who did you say you got to tell somebody do you know I'm going to stop this well and and my, my wife I mean uh, she was the, my confidant you know uh, I I started off as I said earlier. I was when I was doing everything on my own terms. I was I was escalating up the ladder all the time. You know, uh, I was choosing which events to play, which not to play. And then, uh, you know, once I started to get managed uh, and got the run around, my life wasn't my own. Uh, trying to be all things to all people all the time, and it's impossible. Do you think Rory McIlroy is going through that at the moment? Well, yeah, uh, I'm sure he is, and it, it takes. This is why everybody last year was having a go at him, and I and I said, you know, you need to leave the lad alone a bit because he's finding his sea legs now. He's he's he can't he can't be the number one player in the world and live in Hollywood, Northern Ireland for a start. People coming into your driveway, driving round and nosing around. He's got to be in a gated community in in America. It's a whole upheaval, uh, and and he needs time to adjust. He's human, 
I think he's a, a precocious talent, and you know, I just wish him well. I hope he, he you know, he, he, starting this year, he looks like he's got his head on again. During all this time, you continue to play in the Ryder Cup, um, uh, 73, 75, 77, having already played, as we heard, in 67, 69, 71. Um, and it's, it's, after all these continuous beatings, that one draw not, notwithstanding, the decision is made to bring in the rest of Europe. Um, did you understand that decision, and, and did it make a huge difference? Yeah, I did. Uh, I mean, Jack Nicholas, uh, my friend, wrote to Lord Derby and made that suggestion that Europe should be involved, and it wasn't until he did it, because Tom Weiskopf got picked for the 77 match at Lytham uh, and didn't show up, decided to go to Alaska and shoot some a ram or something. Well, I mean, the writing was on the wall there. I mean, if you get picked for the Ryder Cup team, you sure as hell show up. I mean, so presumably somebody was said this thing is dying on its feet. Absolutely, because it's not competitive it, enough. No, it was dying on the vine, and Jack's suggestion was the right thing to do. And you know, Derby, they embraced it. There was a, a few that were, you know, said, "Oh, we don't need the help of Europe." You know, a few, few sort of uh, had that sort of. Uh, off-the-wall British attitude where we can do it. But, I mean, essentially, you're talking about 60 million people uh, being, you know, chosen from Great Britain and Northern mm -hmm. Ireland, or, uh, an Ireland, and 300 million from America. I mean, it was an unlevel playing field. Um, so we went to Europe, and I that was my last match. The first European match was at Glen Eagles, and I was turned out to be my last... Uh, um, Ryder Cup as a player and you know essentially I, I got left out of the team in 81 Seve was banned from the team in 81 uh, good luck with that <laughs> I mean it was a nonsense and I'd done with the establishment and the Ryder Cup and everything I, I was so teed off with everybody and and the whole thing and I thought well I'm just gonna get on with my life now and uh, you know they don't want to win, win the Ryder Cup they think just showing up's good enough well uh, you know, as far uh, as I was concerned, it wasn't. Okay, and I hear the weariness in your voice. You're tired of the the, the grind of golf. You're tired of the people who are running the Ryder Cup. You retired in 82. Why? What persuaded you to take up the captaincy then in 83 for the game in Palm Beach? Well, when they came, Ken Schofield and Colin Snape, who was the head of the PGA at the time, came together and asked me if I would do this. You could have knocked me down with a feather for a start because, I, like I say, I was done with it. And I don't know what happened behind the scenes from their end, you know, but we'd had two European matches. We'd got frappéed just the same way as we'd been frappéed, uh, you know, with the GB&I team. Uh, but, uh, so I was shocked when they asked and I couldn't answer them immediately and I needed to sleep on it, which I did. And I thought, well, I don't give a stuff anyway. Uh, I'm going to just go in and, and ask for what I believe we need to do to, to level the playing field. And that was, you know, Concord, uh, which the Americans flew Concord. We were flying back of the bus on British Airways, not knowing who was buying the drinks or paying for the dry cleaning. We couldn't take our caddies with us. So it was Concord, you know, caddies, cashmere, all the best of everything. I needed the best clothes clothing uh, no more than the Americans were already getting anyway they kept saying yes yes okay and then I said I want an extra pick the captain's pick because I knew you needed 
the 12 best players that you could possibly muster. And the way that the the process went was, you, you know, if you played a lot of tournaments, you could actually get in the team without winning. Sure. Um, just on money. So I, I wanted to know that we had the best. And they kept saying yes. So I said, OK, on that basis, I'll do it. And I'll never forget saying to Derby afterwards, I said, now what about Seve? He says, well, you've accepted the captain's job. Is your problem. And, of course, Seve was anything but a problem to me. I mean, I'd always got on famously with him, and I had a high regard for his talent and ability and, and you know, respect for his game. Anyway, I, I made an appointment. We had breakfast. Uh, you would have loved to have been a fly on the wall yeah. uh, there. Uh, he vented, and I said, I know, but you're right then. I mean, he was going through a tough time. Can you remind time. us why he'd been banned, Tony? Why, why, why had he been picked the Well, there one? was this talk. I mean, every time Seve turned up, he put 50% on the gate. Yeah. And, and his manager and he thought they needed compensating for that. And... Uh, you know, and I don't think the European tour ever really sat him down and said, "Look, how can we accommodate you?" Uh, I don't think that ever happened. And and the upshot of it was they formed a three-man committee and and banned him from playing in the Ryder Cup. And he was arguably the best player in the world. So he was very, very angry and he vented. And I said, "I know, I know, I know." But your pub and the media had come down on on the tour side as well, which which making him look like the bad boy. And so his PR was pretty much in the toilet at the time. And I said, you know, you need to turn some of this stuff around because it's ridiculous what they're writing about you. And uh, anyway, I, I was most concerned about him being on, on the Ryder Cup team. And I said, you know, I think I'm able to take care of all the issues that I think both you and I realise need to be taken care of. I can do everything off the course, but I can't play. You know, you, you know, I need you to lead the... And in the end, he said, OK, I help you. Uh, and that was it. Once he said that, uh, the rest history. We went off that year. The things I'd addressed, we got the team room sorted out. That was very, very important. I mean, back in the 60s and 70s, we used to have meetings in the corner of locker rooms, you know, like a scrummage in rugby, you know, and this is what I'm thinking about doing tomorrow, the captain would tell us. And I very much thought that we needed a room where we could be together and nurture some team spirit and gel with each other. Obviously, it worked. I think there are events in the, in the, in the world of sport and in the history of different individual sports um, which are themselves watersheds and which change things possibly forever. In the same way as everyone can remember the feeling when England won the Ashes in 2005 to break Australia's iron grip on that tournament and to revivify the century-and-a-half-old contest, so we're coming to the 1985 Ryder Cup at the Belfry where the hole that the United States had had for decades over the teams of Britain and Ireland and latterly Britain, Ireland and Europe is finally broken under the captaincy of my guest tonight, Tony Jacklin. Tony, you'd had the narrow defeat in Palm Beach. I take it with home advantage. You must have thought, OK, if, if the things I've set in place are, are good, if the players play well, we can win this. Absolutely, we did. I mean, the nucleus of the team was very similar. We had, you know, eight or nine of the same guys on, and that was momentum we gained from Palm Beach Gardens. We looked like we were going to win that one, I promise you, all that last afternoon and it j 
just turned at the end and we were all pretty disappointed but I think it was Seve that said you know this is not a loss it's a victory this is the first time we've ever come close to winning in America and that that was a stepping stone Trevino was the American captain he came on there you know with the, the, the opening ceremony full of confidence as all his predecessors have been you know all he thought he had to do is smack his players on the butt and you know they, they'd, they'd go out and, and win again he'd got no reason he said to believe that they won't be wouldn't be victorious but of course we had other ideas and uh, we got it done uh, memorable tremendous week uh, took the momentum from that two years before and hit the ground running there and and it was fantastic euphoric you know Bernard Langer was 28 years old then and it had been that long since we'd won in at Lindrick you know and I'd, as a small boy with my father I'd I'd seen that I forgot so, of course so that's what yeah. we talked about an hour and a half ago you saw the last time that, exactly. that, uh, that we'd won uh, the Ryder Cup and here you are captaining the team and in some ways uh, obviously we're, we're so used to it going down the last hole of the last pair um, there's a different kind of joy here we're uh, Great, Europe and uh, the European team were two points up at the start of Sunday and stretched away like Shergar. Yeah, yeah. And uh, who'll ever forget that final putt of Sam Torrance's and his arms going straight up into the air? You know, it was euphoric. In, it the, was... in the unlikely event, anyone's forgotten it. Um, listen, <laughs> it was it was so historic. It's changed everything for the European tour. It changed the way the Americans think yeah. about world golf. Let's just hear. Another view of all of that. George O'Grady is the uh, European Tour's chief executive. And here he is just looking back um, on the effect you had on the game. He got the best out of his teams. He had some great players at that time with Nick Faldo, Severiano Bastios, Bernard Langer, uh, Ian Woosnam, whatever. But they all had different characters and Jacqueline got them to gel. He, uh, he knew how to lift people when they were down and keep them on the straight and narrow. He was, he was a great captain, and uh, he changed the face of the game. One, by his win at Royal Open St. Towns, but two, really on the Ryder Cup, he got everybody believing they could win. Yeah, that's George O'Grady there. And Tony, I'm sorry we have to skate through some of these things, but there is so much to fit in in your, in your storied career, as the Americans say. Um, if that historic win at the Belfry in 85 was one thing, to go to the United States, would they would argue, for all the glorious history in Scotland and the north of England, they would argue they're now the home of professional golf. They are the daddy of professional golf. To go to Muirfield Village in 1987, um, where no European or British team had ever won the Ryder Cup, I mean, you must have... Even that win at the Belfry... Uh, paled in insignificance with the challenge that faced you in America, surely? Yeah, it did. And I, when I was a bit more composed, actually, in my proper speech... Uh-huh, about as opposed to just shouting and roaring. Yeah, <laughs> well, I did say that the ramifications of that victory would uh, run far and long. And uh, my, how how that's, uh, that's happened. I'm but, not sure the Americans even come from it now. No, I, I think you're probably right. Uh, I mean, uh, but nevertheless, we, we took... That victory in 85, as we'd done the performance in 83, as a stepping stone, we, we were moving along here. And the only thing we hadn't done is win on American soil. And obviously that got taken care of in Jack's backyard, uh, you know, by a team that weren't. I mean, we had a lot of guys on our team, you know, Darcy and Howard Clark and the likes that not non-major winners. Gordon Brown. Ken Brown. Yep. Gordon, Gordon uh, Brown, Ken Brown. Um you know, they just had this sort of inner confidence about them, this serene sort of, you know, inner confidence that knew, they knew. It wasn't bravado anymore. It was it was 
pure confidence that they knew they were equal to the task. And uh, as I say, to do it in Jack's backyard at Muirfield Village was... Uh, was awesome. I mean, he's a great sport anyway, and I mean, he took it on the chin as he'd, he, 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 you would expect him to. And I, I said at the time, I said it. I think he was the only player that, uh, with his stature, wasn't going to be changed because of this, uh, this uh, defeat he'd, he'd had at, on home soil. And of course, it wasn't. But it was a tremendous step for European golf and a euphoric week for us all. Uh, Europe winning by 15 points to 13 and there you are back-to-back captain of winning teams home and away in the Ryder Cup and a moment of great personal triumph for yourself and we'll come back to the Ryder Cup in just a little while. Um, It's also followed though um, in April of the following year but I think one of the, uh, let's not beat around the bush, um, one of the more difficult aspects of your life, and that is that Vivian, who you've met so young, married so young, have been so important to you in your rise through the ranks of golf, um, very young, 44 years of age, uh, she died of a brain hemorrhage. Um, and it's led to, obviously that was traumatic in itself, but it meant a very difficult time for you in your life. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was the shock of it. Uh, you know, I think if you'd have... If it had been a cancer that she may have had and a build-up, and but it was just she was there one day and gone the next. You know, it was the enormity of the shock. I mean, she was my um, she was my pal. You know, I mean, we were we were a partnership, and we had three te- teenage children. It was a very very difficult time, and uh, the shock took um, a, a lot of getting over and. Uh, Thankfully, Astrid, who I met later that year, um, uh, and uh, we just celebrated 25 years and renewed our vows the other day in December. Uh, if, if she hadn't been there, uh, I don't know what would have happened. Really, I don't. How? I mean, I've, I've read. I've read in your book. I mean, you you describe the shock and the effect on you before you met Astrid. I mean, it's a very short space of time. You talk in your book about. But having suicidal thoughts is also the issue of um, finding comfort with a with a, a young girl that ended up with you. I mean, say young, she was sixteen, but uh, crying on her shoulder and on the front pages. Um, it's an extraordinary roller coaster time for you because you go from from that to being married again within six or seven <laughs> months. Now, forgive me, I, 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 no. I'm, I'm not you. I don't know what your life was no, like. No, 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 you're fine. But I was living in Spain at the time, and uh, you know, prayer. Uh, I had a few few friends, but uh, essentially it was getting used to this sort of all being alone again, and the world was a different place. But in, in, inside, I knew after the first sort of three months of, uh, of uh, drinking whiskey every night and, and all the rest of it, that I had to get back out into the world again. And in my, uh, you know, I, you mentioned this, the, the young, younger lady, I Donna, thought in yeah. my, yeah, I thought in my mind, you know, maybe I could train somebody young to, to take care of me the way Vivian used to, you know. I don't know what it's the hell a, I was thinking. It's a brilliant thinking. plan, Tony, but it isn't going to well, work. Well, you know, you're not, you're not yourself, no. and it was, uh, it was a very, very uh, rough period. And, uh, but meeting Astrid, um, who was uh, 37 at the time and had two children, uh, she, she would, uh, she'd had a divorce uh, a year or so before, a uh, mature woman who recognised all of the needs. She just fell into a, a role as mother for my teenage children. Uh, and it was uh, 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 and has been a fantastic love affair. I mean, I was very, very, 
very lucky to meet Astrid. And as you say, just running up to Christmas this year, um, you yep. renewed your vows together. We did. We did. We went onto the beach at our favourite restaurant in uh, Anamira Island, Florida, and renewed our vows. Twenty-five years. We were married on December the twenty-ninth. Uh, so uh, it's uh, who knows? Who knows what's coming in life? Uh, but it was. Uh, it's been spectacular. God love Astrid. That's all I say because I do. I think we should uh, we should go to one more Ryder Cup. Your fourth as the non-playing captain, eighty-nine at the Belfry. Um, it's a draw on paper, so Europe retain retain the title, which is what you want. Um, I have to say, one of the least dramatic draws of all time. Because uh, let's not show off here, but uh, Britain, Ireland, and Europe had that thing wrapped up by the middle of Sunday afternoon, didn't you? Or was it not quite as simple as that? Well, all the all the stars lost. That was the f- funny one. I mean, Seve lost, Faldo lost. I think Woozy lost on that last day in the singles, and it was down to Christy Junior hitting that wonderful two iron. You can uh, all rely on the Irish players, don't worry about that. <laughs> well, he hit that wonderful two-iron to sort of put uh, Freddie Couples to bed, and Freddie had outdriven him on that last hole by 40 yards or so. So it was quite... Uh, I was relieved to get it done. It was a fourth time, as you say, and I thought it might have been one bridge too far. I was, I'd have been very happy to step down after the home-and-away wins. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, I, I moved on after that, and... Uh, well, you, you, you've, you've really got two golf careers to look back on here, then. You've got your playing career and you've got your captaincy career, the Ryder Cup. No one's done it four times uh, since, and nobody probably will. It looks like it's too big, it's too much pressure. That's right. And you change the nature of the contest. Could you compare your playing career to your captaining career? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I did, I did my best on both counts, and I couldn't have done the captain's job when I was 25, when in my majors. Uh, so I've been a very lucky chap, you know, having a couple of, being in the right place at the right time twice. And uh, but I worked hard at, you know, the the first time around. I, and I look back, honestly, I do, and I gave it my best shot. I mean. I didn't do it the, probably the right way. I mean, I, I, looking back, I should have been living in America, as I, I said earlier on, where the best players were. It had been a lot easier, and I could have still supported European golf. But uh, so, you know, is that a regret? Yes, but, you know, all in all, it's been a great life, you know. I mean, I've met some fantastic people. I was educated through my travel and what golf gave to me. I just thank God that my dad... Uh, Started playing at 36 years of age when I was eight or nine, you know, and took me along. And uh, I'll be forever grateful for him well, and look, that. Let, let's, let's get a view on what you've achieved as a player and in the Ryder Cup as, a, as captain. From another former Ryder Cup captain, of course, your friend and colleague, Bernard Gallagher, joins us now. Hello, Bernard. Hi. Hi. Hi, Tony. Bernard, how are you? <laughs> Bernard, I think the problem here for me is that the career expands so long and it goes from uh, a time when you know we had only a few professional golfers in the black and white television age and ends up in the modern era with these superstars playing each other in the Ryder Cup. It's very hard for me to assess the impact that Tony Jacklin has had on British, European and world golf. So I'll, I'll force you to do that difficult task. Well, Tony, Tony was the first, really, Britain that went across and... Uh... He played the, the Americans on their own patch. As he said, he probably regrets not playing a little bit more over there. But he really led the way. He realised that he couldn't really get to the top unless he went to America, lived in America, played with the top players and beat them over there. And he did that. 
And uh, I think it stood him in good stead when he came across to Lytham and he, and he won that great victory in 1969 at Royal Lytham for the first time a, a Brit had won the uh, the Open Championship since Max Faulkner in 1953, I think it was. Yeah, uh, but, uh, but the... A lot of tension. Can I just say there was an awful lot of tension on Tony Jacklin at Royal Lytham in 1969 and, and really... One one of the shots I'll always remember was his drive off the last, which is a very tough hole at Royal Lytham, as we could see a couple of years ago. That's really why Ernie Els won his Open, because he hit a fantastic tee shot at the last. Well, I think it was even tougher in Tony's day, and Tony hit the most fantastic drive I've ever seen, and uh, just split the middle of the fairway and hit it on the green, and it was a great way to win. A great golfer then. What about his leadership qualities then when he takes hold of and transforms the fortunes of the British, Irish and European Ryder Cup team? Well, the great thing was that uh, as a player in the team, I mean, we've now got a captain who was a great player who's scaled the heights, who's won majors. And uh, you've got to remember that the captain against Tony at the time in 1983 at, at PJ National, where the where the Hondos played the other day, though they've changed a few holes, was Jack Nicholas. And, you know, we I, I was a player then, and every, all the players felt that, you know, we really, Tony was playing against Jack Nicholas as well, in, in a way, as being captain. He was about the one person in Europe and, and Britain that could could rub shoulders with Jack Nicholas, and this gave all the players a boost, and, and the team played really well because of it. Well, listen, Bernard, it's been short but sweet. Thank you very much for just giving us just a flavour from somebody who knows Tony far better than me of the things that he has helped to achieve in golf. Thanks very much, Bernard Gallagher, former Ryder Cup uh, captain himself, of course. Uh, thanks for him joining us here on Talk Sport. We're running out of time here, Tony Jack, and we've still got um, quite a bit to talk about. I mean, you've done course designing. You're a very familiar voice and face in our coverage of golf. Um, and yet, for all of that... You've probably gained more fame in the last couple of years um, by your appearance on Strictly Come Dancing. <laughs> um, tell me about the dancing first. We might find we might fit in the other parts of your career in a minute. Uh, well, I don't think it's going to be a new career. Uh, no. Uh, you know, uh, it was a tremendous uh, physical effort. The uh, the training, the, the four hours a day I had to do for six weeks before. I, I, I Really, by the time the show went on the air, I have to say, I just wanted my life back. You know, I was, I was, I mean, I have a great life. Yeah. And I, it's a relatively sedentary lifestyle I lead these days. And to be thrust into this gym every day, having to practice, I was like saturated uh, every night, you know, when I got out of there. And I enjoyed the experience uh, immensely. I'd, I'm very naive in terms of uh, knowing what, uh, you know, it, the shows were good. I mean, and I loved the pros, the people I met, uh, that that whole thing when we put the event on. I mean, I was uh, very nervous, I must say, stepping onto a dance floor doing yeah, what I was doing in front of 10 million people. I was, at the end of the day, I was just saying to myself, please, God, don't let me fall, you know. Uh, but uh, all around, it was a, a good experience, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I did it. Does it mean that you are having a second spell where you're recognised in the street in this country? Uh, With all due respect to your previous achievements. No, that's, yeah, I mean, I've been living in Florida for 20 years. You know, playing, I played senior golf, and I wanted to give it my best shot when I'm playing senior golf over there. 
which, which I felt I did. And uh, and there is a generation, there's no doubt, that didn't know who I was. And, uh, That's inevitable, yeah. And uh, Champions, my management company, said, you know, uh, this is a way to take care of that. So uh, I took their lead and... Uh, I was very happy I did it. And uh, Aliona, my partner, God love her, she was a slave driver, I must say, when it came to me, but uh, a great lady. So uh, as well as that, as I say, there's the course designing and the the media work. Which parts of those things do you enjoy most these days? Uh, You know, getting the opportunity to design golf courses is is the key. You know, there's a lot of competition there. And we're doing a couple of courses now in Morocco and and then Cyprus and we're, we're constantly looking for opportunities but uh, you know I'm, I'm doing a theatre tour later this year I'm looking forward to that reminiscing a bit as we've done today uh-huh. we've, 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 Willie Thorne will make sure it's funnier than this uh, yeah and, and of course attending the majors you know the, the Open certainly I'll be there this summer and uh, doing a bit of commentary at the Senior Open I, being around the game that uh, has been my life it's, it, it's fun you know and uh, are you, excuse me, it just occurred to me, are you at the stage yet where they, they, you get the honorary first shot at these big tournaments? No, I don't want that. I don't want pressure. <laughs> you know, I've, I've been but when there. when you see people that. like Gene Sarazen, bless him, in his 90s, <laughs> yeah. banging the ball down the course. Yeah, it's uh, it's stressful, all of that, when you're, you know, you need to be young and resilient. How often for do you pick a golf club up these days? Um I still play a bit. Um, I, you know, once once a fortnight, that sort of thing. I do corporate golf still, and I've, so I've got to keep, you know, where I can hit the ball, and I and I still get it out there pretty good. Don't like putting much. Uh, once in a blue moon, did. when you're still, let's forget about the putting. Once in a blue moon, do you catch a drive or your second shot in a way you think, oh, Jacqueline, you still got it. No, I mean, I still hit it. For me, the the way... I mean, I get it out there 270 or whatever it is, 265, wow. which is not not bad. But age gets you in the end, there's no doubt about that. And, and you know, when you've been to the top of the mountain, slipping down the side, there's, there's not much, uh, much fun there. So I'm very happy to do other things. I've got hobbies. I love my marquetry, which is, uh, you know, making pictures out of veneers. And wow. You'll see more of that in in uh, years to come. I've been... I, I do a lot of that, and that's where I spend my spare time. That's my passion now. I love my marquetry. art. My artwork, yeah. Okay, well, is anywhere... Can we, can we, are there any online yet for us to see? There will be. You'll see. Okay. Keep, your, keep your eyes peeled. Absolutely. Yeah. You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk Sports My Sporting Life with Danny Kelly. Thanks for listening, and make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, and Spotify for more top Talk Sport content. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.